Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. So this morning we are undergoing a massive undertaking. We're going to preach about the Bible. Normally we preach from the Bible. Well, not normally, we always preach from the Bible. It's the basis for everything we do here. We read Scripture, we pray Scripture, we preach Scripture. But today I'm preaching about Scripture because that's where the text takes us. And to preach about this is a massive undertaking. It is not possible in one sermon or two, but I'm going to attempt it in two sermons. The next sermon, I'll focus on the usefulness of Scripture, where we will engage that first part of chapter 4 and the last part of verse 16 that we're reading today. And the next sermon, I'm going to talk about what preaching is, why it's important to us, and what is preaching's usefulness in your life. This morning, I'm simply going to lay a foundation to talk about what Scripture is and the importance of our Bibles. So reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writing to Timothy says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the verse I'm focusing on this morning. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Holy God, this morning as we read from your word, we thank you for our Bibles. We are blessed beyond measure to have access and the freedom to read this this morning without fear of retribution, and we don't take that for granted. We cherish your word. We honor your word. We embrace it. We submit ourselves. We stand under the authority of the word of God. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. The grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever, and we thank you for this. Bless these next few moments of time. Let your anointing be in my mind and on my lips as I try to be faithful to what you have inspired the Apostle Paul to write. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Who is God? That question may seem elementary, it may seem too basic, but who is God? That is a question that has been asked since the beginning of all of humanity. Who is God? People can become atheists, but as a rule, people have been worshippers since the beginning of time. Since humanity entered the scene, men and women have been compelled to worship something. They may not worship the one true and living God, but they do worship. To say we are believers means we believe in something. What do we believe in, or maybe more importantly, who do we believe in? Who is God? To be a Christian means that you are monotheistic. It means that you believe there is only one God. I know of no one uh, that claims to be Christian, that claims there is more than one God. It is as foundational in Christianity as anything else we believe. There's one God. We say God is simple. 
And we, by this we mean that God is not made up of parts. There's not part of God that's this. God is simple in that there is only one and there is no division in Him. We confess this idea when we declare that Jesus is divine. The fullness of deity dwells in the body of Jesus Christ, and yet we also confess that God is a spirit. And we confess that the Holy Spirit that dwells within us is God. Not part of God, but all of God. The Holy Spirit tabernacling inside of us is God, and yet we confess there is only one God. None of this is known about God outside of Scripture. There is what we call general revelation. General revelation gives the knowledge that there is a Creator, but it doesn't tell us much about the Creator. We don't know if He's good. We don't even know if there's only one of Him. We just know that a God or gods exist through the creations. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist said. There has always been divine revelation in the world outside of Scripture. God has always revealed Himself. We find in Genesis 1 when God says, let there be light, God is revealing His nature. Psalm 104 says God robes Himself with light like a garment. He puts on light. It's His clothing. It's His attire. 1 Timothy 6 says that God dwells in a light that no man can approach. So the nature of God is light itself. So when God says, let there be light, He's declaring His very nature. The evil in the world that exists today and the Satan that exists in the world today, they don't simply dwell in darkness. They are darkness itself. They exist without the nature of God, which is holy light. Light is God's nature. We see this reflected in the divinity of Christ in John 8 when Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. God is light and Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. It's who He is. So God has always revealed Himself through general revelation outside of Scripture. Isaiah 28 says that God tells the plowman how to do His work. Does God mail the farmer a letter with detailed instructions? Is it listed inside the Bible that says during this season you do this and you should plant these seeds? No, it's not in Scripture. It's general revelation. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as around the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. So Isaiah says that God teaches the farmer how to farm. He does it through nature, the observation of the soil and how the world works. It's called general revelation. God's letting people know that he exists. We call the more detailed and particular revealing about God, we call this special revelation. And while God can and does speak directly to our hearts, and He can speak to people through dreams and visions, the primary way and the supreme way that He speaks to His people is through Scripture. It's a special revelation. The writer of Hebrews said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Now notice the word spoken. In the last days, God speaks to us through His Son. That is how God has revealed Himself to His people in the last days, through Jesus it is no accident that we have the words of Jesus in a book. God has superintended the preservation of the words of Jesus in writing for His people. There was revelation from God before Scripture. There were prophets in the Old Testament and the New Testament who spoke what thus saith the Lord. They were channels of special revelation, giving specific words to people. And many of these people did not have their words recorded. We have no idea what they said. They went around giving a word of prophecy. Every word wasn't recorded. It was special revelation, but it was not written down. So Scripture is the summation. It's the, that revelation of God 
the record of divine revelation that God through His providence gave to His church. The Bible then is not just a book. The Bible is a compilation of books that grew throughout time. If you were a Christian in the year 40 A.D., a few years after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, your only Bible would have been the Old Testament. That's all you had. I was talking earlier about a, a preacher who has now famously said, um, I think we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, to which, rightly so, he has received a lot of flack. It's like, no, we need the Old Testament. We are built upon the Old Testament. The New Testament is the fulfillment, the continuation. But God has always only had one covenant people, and it starts in the Old Testament. If you were a believer in the early part of the church, because the Bible, the New Testament, was not written for several years, it didn't, the, the writing down of these events did not happen for several years. It's not as if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were following Jesus around with a dictaphone or a pen and paper going, no, these words were not recorded for decades after the events happened. So if you're an early believer, your Bible is the Tanakh, the Jewish Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, what they call the Law, the Writing, and the Prophets. This should tell us our need for the Old Testament. Jesus and the Apostles, when they made their appeal to Scripture, when you hear in the New Testament Paul referring to Scripture, he's referring to our Old Testament. The New Testament has not come together yet. Paul writes, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. We think Christ died for our sins, New Testament event, according to the Scriptures, it must be talking about the New Testament. He's like, no, Paul is referring to his Scriptures. Paul is still, and, and we miss this, Paul is still fundamentally Jewish in his thinking. I just bought a book this week called Rabbi Paul, um, and really driving home that idea that uh, Paul has rejected the legalism and the way to salvation through the law. Much of his writing is about how salvation is now through Christ, not the law. But he fundamentally, when, I mean, he, you don't change who you are overnight. It's, it's who he has been all of his life. He is a Pharisee. So I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. He sat at the feet of one of the greatest Jewish scholars in the land. Paul is an Old Testament guy. And then he says that Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So I thought this morning it would be good to do some more basic understanding and explanation of the Bible. Kind of a reset. So in the Old Testament there are 39 books. Five of those books are legal. We call them the Law, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that are attributed to Moses. We know Moses did not write all of the words in those books. Um, it records his death. I don't think Moses recorded his death. Um, he did not write his own obituary. And it was common in those days for books to be, uh, they, they were edited, they were redacted uh, until they came together in a final form. But most of this is attributed to Moses. Twelve of the books are historical, from Joshua to Esther. Five are poetic, from Job to the Song of Solomon. And then 17 books in the Old Testament are prophetic in nature. The books in your Old Testament are not arranged in chronological order. You don't start in Genesis and read the events as they happen throughout the Old Testament. Uh, they are written over several centuries. They're written by different men in different circumstances, from different places. In the New Testament, there are 27 books. Five of those books are historical. The four Gospels and the book of Acts. They're recording events that happened. 21 of those books are doctrinal in nature, the letters of the apostles. Then there is, of course, one prophetic book, the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ is told by the apostle John. And that is, that is our, our being the church today. That is our Bible. 
That is our set of holy scriptures. And again, the New Testament is arranged um, not in the order that the books were written, although they do tend to follow a little more of a chronological order, but they are not exactly, you, you don't follow that, that sequence and say this is how it happened. The church has always confessed that the books in the Bible do not get their authority from men, but rather from God. It was not man that declared this is divinely inspired. God declared they were divinely inspired. God led men to select and put those into a biblical canon, but man does not grant the authority of Scripture upon writings and upon letters. God does that. It was God who superintended the process of selection and the books that we regard as Scripture that have a divine authority built into the text. I'm not going to get into a conversation this morning in this sermon regarding how the books, especially in the New Testament, were selected. If you were interested in that, I would point you to uh, books to read, articles to read on that subject. It's, it would take up two sermons to get into that one topic. So we have a canon. These 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. They come together, the Old and the New Testament, and we call it the biblical canon. That is not to say that books that are not in the canon don't have value. They have a lot of value. They shed a lot of light about what was going on in the world. We just don't regard them as God-breathed writings. It was Augustine that wrote that Scripture is a letter sent by God out of heaven to His church on the earth. And thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank God for the Bible. I'll say just a few things on Bible translations. Uh, they, are in, they are necessary. The Old Testament is written mostly in Hebrew, but in some Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. And unless you speak and can read and write fluently those three languages, you could not read your Bible. And I don't know anybody personally that can do both. I don't know anyone personally that could read all three languages the Bible is written in and not need a translation. Translations are necessary. Translations are not new. They didn't start recently. Jesus and Paul and all those believers in the first century, when they read their scriptures in the Old Testament, they were not reading that, most likely. Well, for certain, in a lot of cases, we know this to be true. They were not reading them in their original language. They were reading a translation. Because they spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. They were Greek-speaking Jews. So they, if they're going to read their Bible, they have to read a translation. The Old Testament was translated into their language 200 years before Jesus lived. And we know this because Paul, when he quotes from the Old Testament, he doesn't quote the words as they're arranged in the Hebrew Bible. He quotes them as they are structured in his translation. We still have that translation today. You can, you can read it. Uh, the, the Old Testament that was translated into their language. So it's nothing new. Jesus and Paul wrestled with translations in their scriptures. Translations are also interpretations. Translators wrestle with words to decide how to best place them into our own language. That's why you can read different translations and they read differently. They use different words. It's because somebody had to decide what's the best way to express this idea. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to translations. I mean, we have several great options to read. There were two approaches to translations. There was this dynamic idea that translators today use, and they say, okay, we're going to take the text, and we're going to try to capture the thought that's in the text, and we're going to put it into the thought in our language. And then there is more formal translations that say, we're going to try to get every single word as much as possible, we're going to equate it to a word that we can read and understand. Most translations that you read from when you do your devotion are a blend of these ideas. So, how many read the NIV? Is there anybody that reads the NIV on a regular basis? The NIV is it's more dynamic. The sentence structure is more simplified. It's often easier to understand the text in the NIV. If I were leading a Bible study for a group of people 
that maybe had a eighth grade reading level. That was, the, that was the educational level in the room, was an eighth grade le reading level. I would use the NIV solely for that Bible study because it's easier to understand. It's faithful to the gospel story. I have my issues with it, but it works and it's easy to understand. Because it's dynamic, you lose, though, a lot of nuance and depth in the text. The most formal translation we have, probably the most literal, the most accurate that we have, is the New American Standard Bible. It's very literal. It tries to get close to a word for word, but anytime you do that, it makes it harder to read. If you were to read the NASB, and I read it for sermon prep, I will consult it a lot, and it is wooden. It's just... It kind of stutters and starts and stops because it was not written. It's not how we would write. So we have the ESV, which is kind of a balance of both. And it's why it's become so popular. It's the translation that we use here, the English Standard Version. It's one of several good versions, but we use that because it's, a, it's kind of a middle of the road between the dynamic and the formal. So my encouragement to you is when you're reading your scriptures and your devotions, engage some different translations. See how they read. I was reading last night a, a, a text, I think it was 2 Corinthians 5, the end of 4 and then chapter 5. And I was reading that and I read it in the ESV and then I went to another translation. Uh, I think I went, it, it's the, uh, I think it's called the English translation. And I, I, I read it in that, and I, I saw some things, because it's simpler, I saw some things there, some ideas that I hadn't seen in the ESV. And they were helpful, they were personally edifying and strengthening. I said, thank you Jesus for that reality. So engage different translations. There are translations that we would say you probably should stay away from, but won't get into that this morning. Scripture is divinely inspired. God speaks to us through a book. I want you to stop and think about that. God, the God of the universe, the one true, living, eternal, holy, sovereign, providential God who knows no boundaries, who says the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That God speaks to you and I. Finite, ordinary, sinful creatures and God talks to us. Now, I think it's safe to say that if any one of you here today would have had a dream last night and you were 100% convinced God spoke to me through that dream, I think, I mean, you just knew God, God told me something in that dream. You'd have probably told me about it this morning. You just said, you know what, I've had a lot of dreams in my life, but God this morning, he talked to me in a dream. He met me in a vision. I want us to know that God speaks to us just as real through a book, through the scriptures, daily. As often as you want a word from the Lord, you have a word from the Lord. Now, when we say scripture is inspired, we mean it is inspired in a particular way. I have heard inspired sermons. I have heard wonderful sermons. I have heard inspired speeches that were secular by non-religious people, but they don't rise to the level, indeed it is impossible for a sermon to rise to the level of this sort of inspiration. It's, not, it's just not possible. Scripture is divinely inspired in a way that nothing else today can be. There is always going to be a gap there. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, inspired and inspiring. Jack Kennedy's inauguration speech, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And you're welcome for me not trying to do it in the Boston accent. <laughs> inspired. I mean, think about what he said that day. It inspired the whole generation. But it was not on the level of what we would say is Scripture. So let's read the text this morning. Verse 16, I'm going to read it in two translations. I'm going to read it first in the ESV that we read this morning, and then I'll read it in the King James. <clears throat> All Scripture is breathed out by God 
It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. King James, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So King James did not use God-breathe, it used the word inspiration. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Same sentiment, same idea. The big difference is the ESV is getting more literal than the King James did. Because inspiration there literally means, when Paul writes that word, they would have understood it to mean God breathed. The breath of God coming out into a book. Now we know the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament have words that can mean either wind or spirit. That's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. That word spirit, when Paul writes, when Luke writes in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, he's writing the word, his word holy, and he's writing a word, he would write it down as panephma. And we would say it's pneuma, and we use the same word in our language. We say somebody has pneumonia. Pneumonia is a sickness of the lungs that fills the air sacs. That's why they call it pneumonia, because it's something that deals with breathing, with the air. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, it came as a sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind. The inauguration of the church on this earth came when the Holy Spirit comes and they hear it in an upstairs room and it sounds like a, just like we hear it today. I heard it a couple nights ago. It has it's not rained or, or really stormed here in so long and I was at home and I started hearing the wind outside and it, it dawned on me. I have not heard the wind like that in a very long time. It's just been still. There's not even been a, just much of a breeze. And so the sound of the wind gets my attention. This is what they heard on the day of Pentecost, this feast of Pentecost. Jesus said in John 3, the wind blows where it wills. It's free. The wind has freedom. And Jesus said, you hear its sound and you can't see where it comes from. You can't see where it's going. And then he says, and so is everybody that is born of the Spirit. So when we say the Bible is God-breathed, we mean it is the Holy Spirit breathing out into words in a book. It is the transfer of divine revelation from God to man through the means of reading and writing. It's why I regard the gift of language, both spoken and written, as a glorious gift from God to all humanity. Because it's the method that God has used to give His people revelation. Divine inspiration does not mean that God moved upon holy men of old, took over their minds, their hand, they went into a trance, they became this automatic robot that just started writing words that they didn't know what they were saying. It's not how it worked. The writers used their own style, their own level of education, their own personality to write Scripture. And we know this because the Gospel of Mark reads really differently than the Gospel of Luke. Mark's personality, just how he is, comes out. Luke is very different. Peter's writings, Peter's writings are very different than Paul's writings. Two completely different men writing their own ways, but God at the highest level of inspiration is breathing upon them to pen the words. So two quotes by N.T. Wright that I think will be helpful. Inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by His Spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were books God intended His people to have. Wright will say this often, I believe the book that God wanted us to have is the book that we have. I've heard him say that a dozen times. He also says, it is, I love this, what he writes here, it is as though the word of the Yahweh is like an enormous reservoir full of creative divine wisdom and power into which the prophets and other writers tap by God's call and grace so that the word may flow through them 
to do God's work of flooding and irrigating his people. So if the Bible is God-breathed, it is also without error. And we call this the inerrancy or the infallibility of Scripture. And the church has always faithfully confessed this truth. We say this book is the Word of God and it is faithful. The writers did not make mistakes conveying the ideas about God. It has to be that way if it's God-breathed. The Holy Spirit, if they are writing under divine inspiration then we trust the Holy Spirit to be perfect in that inspiration, and it is the Word of God. In 1978, more than 200 evangelical leaders gathered in Chicago at a conference and formulated what they called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. So the last few years we have had what's called the Nashville Statement. The Nashville Statement is sort of the same thing. A lot of churches are adopting the Nashville Statement and putting it in their statement of faith, because the Nashville statement said uh, in regards to human sexuality, to marriage between a man and a woman, to the church's stance on these issues, and they got together and said, we formulate this as an official stance that the evangelical church in America takes. It's very good. I would commend you read the, the Nashville statement. The Chicago statement dealt with biblical inerrancy. We have to get together, they said, and, and form a statement that says, we declare as leaders the Bible is inerrant. And this is, it's a long document, this is a summary. God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator, Lord, redeemer, and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Holy Scripture, being God's own Word, written by men, prepared and superintended by His Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon what it touches. It is to be, to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God commands, in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises." The Holy Spirit is Scripture's divine author. It both authenticates it to us by His inward witness and it opens, He opens our minds to understand its meaning. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings, no less in what it states about God's act in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And finally, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own, and such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. We declare the Bible is infallible and inerrant. So if it's infallible... If it's divinely inspired, that means it's infallible. And we could also say that the Bible is sufficient. The sufficiency of Scripture was an idea that was driven home to me in a class I took in 2015 or 16. I, I took a class 20, it was either 2015 or 2016. I took some biblical counseling, counseling classes at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And one of the professors was Frank Catanzaro. And Dr. Catanzaro just, he was a licensed clinical counselor, but he would regularly say, he just, he didn't have a lot of use for all of those tools. He said, the Bible is sufficient in these matters. And this is what he used. It was biblical counseling. It wasn't counseling guided by biblical principles. That's what I thought it was going to be when I went to take the class. It was actually using the text in the Bible to counsel people. It was counseling by the Bible. And the idea over and over was the sufficiency of Scripture. But we believe the Scriptures are sufficient. They are enough. enough but what exactly does that mean? Well, 
it doesn't tell us everything we need to know about every area of life. The Bible doesn't. It doesn't tell us about a lot of things that we need to know in life. Um, if you change your oil every 5,000 miles, you don't do that because the Bible told you to. You do it because the owner's manual told you to. If you want to be an engineer, uh, studying the Bible isn't enough. You're going to have to learn a lot of engineering things about math and whatever else it is that engineers know. Uh, there's some training there. If you want to be an expert in economics, the Bible has a lot of great wisdom about money, but it wouldn't be enough to be an economic expert in our world today. So what the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean, it does not mean that the Bible is the only book that is useful. Now I say this, you may say, well, that's, that's absurd to say that. I mean, everybody would, nobody would assume that that's what it means, but I say that because there is a movement known as Biblicism, which says that the only book we need regarding any spiritual matter, the only book that we should be engaging is the Bible. So it would shun any other books written about the Bible. It would shun any creeds, confessional statements, statements of faiths like their, their mantra is no creed but the Bible. The Bible is the only thing we need in matters of, of religious matters. Biblicism doesn't just argue for the supremacy of Scripture, which we would champion. It's correct. It also argues for the exclusion, church history, perspectives gained from the community of believers, the wisdom of 2,000 years of, of godly men and women. Nope. Don't need any of that. That is not what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. What we mean is that there is no other special revelation that we need from God. It means that when we read any other book, when we engage anything else, sermons, podcasts, TV preachers, YouTube preachers, preachers in this pulpit, we say we have a perfect standard to judge you by. That's what that means. Like, you're not the gold standard. You are capable of making mistakes. I love to read, but I never pick up a book outside of Scripture and assume that everything in there is going to be correct and that I have to believe everything that's in that book. I regularly challenge ideas in my mind that I read by some of my favorite authors. Eugene Peterson is probably personally my, my favorite, most impactful author, but I've read lots of things that Peter Peterson has written and said, I don't think that's quite right. I don't think you're quite in synthesis there with, uh, with Scripture. And that's okay. I, I would expect, I've always said this, I would have no expectation for anyone to ever, even in one sermon, agree with 100% of what I say. I have no expectation that's the case. The only thing that we regard as infallible that we must submit ourselves to is the Word of God. Someone asked John MacArthur, how much authority does a pastor have in the church? And he said, well, that's very easy to answer. He said, they have none in and of themselves. He said, there's no authority in the office. He said, the authority is from the Word of God and the extent that the pastoral authority is to the extent that the pastor stands under the Word of God. Biblicism, we argue, is not a good idea when we say when we view the sufficiency of Scripture as the idea that it's supreme and that anything else submits to it, this then allows us to use words and terms that aren't found in the Bible but represent biblical truth. That has been the foundation for understanding and teaching Scripture for 2,000 years, is doing that very thing. What we won't accept is any word that elevates itself to the level of Scripture or any word that violates Scripture, whether it's a book or a sermon or someone who says, God told me so. I mean, is that not the ultimate trump card? God revealed it to me and told me so, so it's thus and such. Dr. Catanzaro that I mentioned earlier, he told the story about uh, a woman who walked into his office and said, the Lord told me it was okay to marry my stepfather. They're going to get divorced, I'm going to marry him, but it's all right, me and the Lord worked it out, he told me it was okay. And he said it was all I could do to pull out, and I don't remember the chapter reference, but there is a, a chapter in Corinthians where Paul's addressing this very exact issue. He said, I almost, he said, if it hadn't been for disrespecting the Bible, he said, I wanted to pull out my Bible, open it up to that, and just rip the page out and throw it away and go, well, I guess we don't need that. 
Why? Because whatever she said has already been addressed in Scripture. So we don't accept anything that violates biblical truth. We reject it wholesale without exception because the Bible is sufficient for divine special revelation. That's the point I'm trying to get across this morning. There is no other special revelation coming outside of Scripture that has closed. There are no men today. There are no apostles today. I believe that the fivefold ministry is enacted in the church today. Apostles and prophets and pastors and evangelists and teachers, but not apostles in the sense that they write things that are on par with Scripture. That was closed with the canon. It is, I believe, the only thing that was closed with the canon in terms of divine impartation and miracles, signs, wonders, tongues, all of that are for the church today. But that matter of writing scripture, that was closed. So I would close with this. How does this all relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now I told you in the beginning, I view this sermon as the first half. And so I told myself, well, I will relate how all of this relates to the gospel in the second part in the next sermon. We'll talk about the gospel, we'll dovetail it, we'll treat it as one sermon. Uh, so I'll do that because I, I, I do always try to bring everything home to the gospel. We're gospel-centered people. And then I watched a documentary, finished it this week, it's on Amazon Prime. I would implore you to watch this. Um, it is on the life of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. On Amazon Prime, it is called Logic on Fire, which is how Jones defined preaching. He called preaching Logic on Fire. Now, when I say Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I don't mean doctor in the sense that he was an academic who went to get his Ph.D. in theology. He actually was a medical doctor in his early years, accomplished physician who left, actually never went to seminary, left the practice of being a medical professional doctor and entered into ministry. And he defined preaching as logic on fire. Logical train of thought. Fire. The documentary is gold. I would encourage you to watch it. Jones is widely regarded as the greatest preacher of the 20th century. I know you really can't rank preachers, but I certainly have heard far more people make the claim for Jones to be the greatest preacher in the 20th century than I have any other preacher in the 20th century. Uh, his Welch, Welsh accent, thick brogue, would thunder throughout the hall of Westminster Abbey. He would don his black preaching robe over his suit and tie. He was earnest, blood earnest, never without a full suit and tie. The documentary, his grandson said, Grandpa always, if he went to the beach, Grandpa went to the beach in a suit and tie. And he said he was so influential in England that other men tried to emulate him and they would go to the beach in the suit and tie and they would just look ridiculous. You should not emulate that. That's who Grandpa was. That's not who you are. Um, but he was as old school as they come. He was a continuationist in his uh, theology, in believing that the gifts of the Spirit had continued on to this church age in an era that that was very common outside of certain faith traditions. It is on my bucket list to visit Westminster Chapel where Jones pastored from 1943 to 1968. There is a conference there uh, this week where uh, in the same, in Westminster, his pulpit, the pulpit's probably one of the largest pulpits in existence. It's still there. Um, a friend of mine from Rowlett uh, is there this week. He sits on the board uh, for the Martin Lloyd Jones uh, ministry that has tried to make all of his sermons accessible on YouTube uh, because he had become largely forgotten until people helped resurrect him to say this is one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He would preach Friday nights. Young people would come out in London on Friday nights. Uh, the place seated 1,500 people. They would pack the hall every Friday night to hear him preach. Then he would preach Sunday morning and then he would preach Sunday nights. Three Days a week, Jones would preach all those years, and they would pack the house to hear him. I preached a sermon on the book of Ephesians, and I took ten sermons to preach 
through the book of Ephesians. Jones preached ten sermons, or preached, excuse me, through the book of Ephesians, and he used 232 sermons to preach through the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> I don't know how he did it. I, would, I, I ran out of things to say after ten sermons, but that's why he's Jones and I'm not. So I talked about saving the gospel for that second part. <clears throat> during World War II, now think, he's in London during World War II pastoring. London is being bombed during World War II. He preaches a two-part sermon on Sunday with the intention, he said, I will present the gospel in the second part since I treat this as a two-part sermon. And between services, a few people who were in the morning service would be killed in the war before they came back to church that night. They never made it back to the evening service. And he lamented the fact for the rest of his life, I didn't present the gospel like I should have in that morning service. And it was a reminder to me that we must always be, always be Christ-centered, gospel-saturated people. Everything goes back to the gospel. Everything that I preach to you this morning that I am passionate about us knowing because it's the Bible is growing dusty on people's shelves. The, the, the amount of biblical, the level of biblical illiteracy in this country is offensive outside the church. It's appalling and disgusting when it's inside the church, when there's people who have attended churches for 30 years, week in and week out, and the pulpit is so not Scripture saturated that those people don't know their Bibles. So everything I preach to you this morning I think is important, but it's not enough that you have knowledge about the Bible. I preach this this morning that you might see King Jesus more clearly in the Holy Scriptures. I preach this so that you can see Jesus high and lifted up and the train of His robe filling the temple. I preach this this morning so you can see Jesus Christ is the Word of God incarnate. Jesus is the eternal Logos, the Word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, it was Jesus, the Word of God, who said, For for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law, from the scripture, until all is accomplished. The word incarnate verified and validated that the written word of God is infallible. How incredible is that? The word validating the word. So when you read scripture, I want us to see Jesus on every single page. John 5, 39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. The Bible, the Scripture, Jesus said, Your law, your writings, your prophets, they were talking about Me. I want you to see Jesus in the Old Testament. It's why we should tremble when we hear a preacher say, like I said earlier, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. It's like, no, Jesus is in the Old Testament. I want us to know our Bible so we can see King Jesus in all of His splendor and all of His glory. It is only through Scripture that we see Jesus dying on the cross. It is only through Scripture that we see His righteousness imputed to us upon the basis of our faith. It is only through Scripture that we see Jesus as the final victor over death, hell, and the grave. We need our Bibles. We need, we must be Bible-saturated people. And I would simply close with this idea. I, yes, I would implore you to read good books, listen to sermons, but not at the expense of your time of simply spending time with Jesus in the Bible. I am not so interested that you have a Bible reading plan that you tick off a box every day so you can say, I fulfilled my duty. If that's how you do it and it works for you, that's great. But don't get caught up in the, it's just another, I've got a to-do list of 12 things today. I've got to take the kids here. I've got to get the oil changed on the car. I've got to pick up something at the store. And oh, I've got to read these three chapters from Second Chronicles. I would rather see us spend time, slow down. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a speed race. A friend of mine recommends he said, read the Gospel of John. There's 21 chapters in John. My friend says, read three chapters a day for seven days in John. 
And he said, and then when you're done, go back the next week and read it again, and go back and read it again. Immerse yourselves in the Holy Scriptures, for in them we have life. Let's stand. Father, this morning we have gazed into your word. We have looked deeply into it. We've examined it. But Lord, we know that simple knowledge of your scriptures does not save us. There are people who can quote entire chapters of the Bible who are not saved. They are not regenerated. So, Lord, this morning we ask you that as we look into your word that you would open up our understanding and our hearts to see the glory of the Lord, to see you as you really are, to orient ourselves in a lost and dying world. We use it for doctrine, yes, but we also use it for instruction in righteousness. We use it for right living. We use it as the standard to measure our lives by. Our standards is not measured by a church or another brother or sister or any preacher. The standard is the Word of God. So every day we use your Word as a mirror that we gaze into. And as it reflects back, we see our imperfections. And through the transforming power of the Spirit that is within us, between your Word and your Spirit, we are being transformed into your image every day. I pray, Lord, you would give us, grant us, a hunger for your word and for your spirit to engage you in scriptures and in prayer like never before, that I may know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings being made conformable to your death. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Together in dismissal, can we lift our hands together? Jesus, thank you this morning for... Uh, your presence, for your power, for your grace that's here today, shine down on us. I pray that you would make us a holy people. I pray that our, our attitude, our drives, our actions, our language, everything that we say and do, that we would do to the glory of God. Lord, help us today to reflect your image and to use your word as the divine standard for our lives. We ask this in the name above every name, the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you this morning.